Good evening, Newark family, and welcome back once again to our live stream. We're so glad to have you joining us tonight, and I hope that you are glad to be here once again. And so I have the pleasure tonight of bringing our Wednesday night live Bible study tonight on July 22nd. And if you've been following along with us, you will know that we are doing a theme over the next two weeks on the what is often called minor prophets, also referred to from the Hebrew Bible as the Book of the Twelve. If you did not know this, in the Hebrew Bible, all 12 of what we call the minor prophets, tucked away at the back of our Old Testament, are collected together in one volume in the Hebrew Bible, and it's referred to as the Book of the Twelve. And so as a pastoral team, we, in our planning for the upcoming weeks, decided to go ahead and take a look at this. I don't know about all of you, but I know for me personally, having grown up in a church environment and around lots of apostolic teaching and preaching, I can remember maybe a handful of occasions where someone preached out of one of the minor prophets when I was growing up. But I don't ever remember a time where we collectively as a church body took a deliberate effort to work our way through these 12 books and look at what it is that they hold and what they offer. And so we, as a pastoral team here at Newark United Pentecostal Church, decided that we wanted to spend some time and we were gonna take all of this week and into next week as well. And we were going to take a deeper dive and a closer look at these 12 wonderful little gems. And I say that sincerely because at least when I was growing up, I often associated these books as a place towards the back of my Old Testament that contained a bunch of prophecies, yada, 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 about Israel and its rebellion. And yeah, God was going to judge them and they were going to go into captivity. And somewhere in there, there was a couple things here or there about a coming Messiah. And that's kind of the view I had of these 12 books. There wasn't much to it. As an adult, coming back to these much later in life and reading through them once again, I realized that there are many rich, wonderful gems throughout all 12 of these books. There are all kinds of neat things there that at a cursory glance, we could easily miss or skip over. And I know for me personally, I have enjoyed greatly as an adult going back through and rereading my way through the book of the 12 and seeing all kinds of things that have been there the entire time. And I just simply missed, likely because I was reading too fast, number one, and secondly, because I associated these books as something specific to the nation of Israel. So tonight, as we do the live Bible study, I am covering not one, but two different books out of the book of the 12. And tonight, we're going to talk about Obadiah, and we're also going to talk about Jonah. Now, if you've been following along with our evening broadcast, I'll let you in on a little secret. We're doing these books in order. So you shouldn't be surprised that I am doing Obadiah and Jonah because they come next. And if you're paying attention, you can figure out what tomorrow night's broadcast is going to be on. And the same thing for Saturday and Sunday and Tuesday and on into next week, because again, we're going to work our way through these 12 books. Now, as a pastoral team, when we met and we discussed this, we talked about that in, in 15 minutes, you can't really do justice to a book of the Bible and do an in-depth exegetical study or a walkthrough of what's going on there. Well, that is true. And so what we decided instead is to highlight some key scriptures and some key verses out of these books and then bring those to you. And our primary goal in doing all of this is just to simply encourage all of you to go ahead and to reread 
If you haven't read before, then read for the first time these minor prophets and do a nice slow reading and absorb what they have to say. But tonight, because I'm doing the live Bible study and I have a little more time than normal, I'm going to take a little bit of a more in-depth look at Obadiah and Jonah than perhaps I would be able to do if I had pre-recorded this message and I only had about a 15-minute time limit. The other thing I want to remind all of you, if you're following along with us, is that we are strongly encouraging everyone to not only read these books, but to go visit thebibleproject.com. And I'm going to get to that in just a few minutes. And if you go visit thebibleproject.com, this is a wonderful, free, hear me, free online resource with many, many high quality videos that do walkthroughs through both the Old Testament books and the New Testament books. It has word studies. They have thematic studies. I personally am a very visual learner, so I enjoy seeing things that are uh, visually well represented. I also enjoy animation, not just the idea of cartoons, but things that are animated. And so these animation videos are high, high quality. They're extremely biblically accurate. They're done by professionals, both biblical scholars and illustrators, and they're very engaging, and I cannot recommend them enough. This is one of my favorite free resources out there that I regularly recommend to people. So if you are not familiar with the Bible Project, go check them out, bibleproject.com, and then once you're there, you can click on videos, and then on the videos, you'll see Old Testament, New Testament, and you can click on the videos for each of these 12 minor prophets. Now, don't do it right now. I want you to pay attention to what I'm doing. But as you read through these books in your own time, it is my hope that what you would do is, for instance, when you read Obadiah, go watch their video on Obadiah first and then read the book of Obadiah. Go watch their little introductory video on Jonah first and then go read the book of Jonah. And what you will see is that it gives you a nice broad overview of the book. A lot of what I'm going to say tonight, you can find in those same Bible Project videos, but I'd still encourage you to watch them for Obadiah and Jonah and the rest of the Minor Prophets as well. And if you watch these videos first and then you go and read these books, you will see things that stick out to you. And uh, you'll probably have some aha moments as you're reading these books and you'll see things. I can almost guarantee you that you will see things that you have missed before in previous readings of them. And so at this time, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen, and we're going to bounce back and forth tonight between me talking to the camera and also sharing my screen. And I'm going to get ready to do this right now. And we're going to go to the Bible Project as soon as I can get this out of the way. Forgive me. I'm having trouble with... There we go. You all got to see a little bit of the restream platform in our backend software application that we do in order to make these live broadcasts work. So this is the Bible Project. So today it says, what's the most quoted passage in the Bible? If you were to visit the Bible Project, here's the first thing you would see. And then right up here towards the top, you'll see this one that says videos. So you can click on videos. And so you can see themes and word studies, Old Testament, New Testament. For our purposes, you can click on Old Testament. And ta-da, right here in the middle, you've got all of these books of the Bible. And so tonight we're doing Obadiah and Jonah. I am not going to play these videos, but I could just simply click on videos and then click on Obadiah. And so what you'll see as this comes up on the Bible project, you're going to see a short little description about the book of Obadiah, followed by 
a little further description down here, some milestones from the book, and then there's the video that you can watch right in the middle of the page. I'm going to stop sharing my screen right now and come back to this. So the reason I say that is if you have not visited that website before, it's very easy to navigate. I strongly encourage you to do that. You'll find that these videos are highly engaging. And again, I cannot recommend them enough. But enough about the Bribal Project. Let's jump right in. So tonight, we're going to take a quick look at Obadiah. Now, why do I say a quick look? I want you to do a slow read of Obadiah. But it's not going to take you that long. Because here's a hint. If you're not familiar with the book of Obadiah, Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. Obadiah is only one chapter long. And so you can easily read this in a sitting and it won't take you very long to read it. And so this tiny, tiny little book is probably one page front and back in your Bible. And if you blink, you'll miss it as you're thumbing through your Bible. And so what is up with Obadiah? Why do we have this tiny little book nestled towards the back of our Old Testament? And who was Obadiah and what was he prophesying about? Well, Obadiah serves an important purpose, and even today for us, we can find encouragement in it, because Obadiah was a prophet who spoke out against the land of Edom, E-D-O-M, the land of Edom. Now, why was it important that Obadiah spoke against Edom? What did he have to say? Why should we even bother with this book today? Edom if you remember your Jewish history, you're going to have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, Abraham has a son and his name is Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons, twins. In fact, he has Jacob and Esau. And as these brothers grow up and become adults, they go their separate ways. And both of them have a name change. The name change you're probably most familiar with is that of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Jacob has 12 sons and a daughter. And then these 12 sons in turn have many more children and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jacob's descendants are the Israelites. Esau also has many sons and descendants and they become a neighboring nation to Israel. And by now, if you haven't figured it out, you could probably guess that Esau's name was changed to Edom. And so the descendants of Esau or Edom are the Edomites. So you jump forward hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And now you have the land of Israel. And then across the other side of the Dead Sea, just to the southeast of the land of Israel, is high hilly country with lots of mountainous peaks. And the people who live up in the top of these mountains have a very, very secure nation. They've built fortresses high up on the rocks, and they've got walled cities that are way up off the ground. And so they're pretty well protected from everybody around them because they're up high. They can see anybody who may be coming to attack them. And they feel very, very strong and confident and very comfortable in who they are and how well protected they are. And this nation is the land of Edom. These are the Edomites. They are the close relatives of the Israelites. Now, Israel goes through its ups and its downs, and then it technically splits into two different kingdoms. And by the time you get to Obadiah, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been destroyed. And the southern kingdom of Judah has been taken off into the land of Babylon in captivity. And this brings us up to Obadiah. And Obadiah is prophesying against their neighbors, against their close relatives, relatives, the Edomites, and Obadiah is upset with them because when Babylon came to attack Jerusalem, 
And when Babylon came to conquer the land of Judah, not only did the Edomites, their close relatives, their literal neighbors just across the Dead Sea, not only did they not help them, they laughed and they rejoiced that the Babylonians were coming to destroy Israel. And then even worse than that, you can go read Obadiah later. It won't take you very long. They create they commit an even greater evil in that not only do they mock the nation of Israel for their destruction, they actually decide to throw their lot in with the Babylonians and help them. And so the Edomite soldiers come down from the mountaintop fortress and they are at the southern end of the land of Judah. And as people are trying to escape from Jerusalem and get across the river to get away from the invading Babylonian army, they are standing there waiting and they either kill and execute the people who are trying to escape or they capture them and turn them into the Babylonians. So it is a total, total family betrayal. Not only did their close relatives and neighbors not help them, they sided with the other guys. They sided with the enemy and decided to throw their lot in and help them. And so Obadiah is prophesying against them. And then once you get partway through the book, and I'm going to jump into Obadiah, and we're going to jump down to verse number 15. This is kind of the hinge point in the book. It says, the day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. As you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. And then the focus of the book kind of shifts. So not only is it a judgment against Edom, Obadiah then uses Edom kind of as a type, a stereotype, a representation of all wicked nations who attack God's people. And he warns them, not only are you not safe up on your mountain fortresses, God is going to judge you, but God's going to judge all the wicked nations of the world. And so Edom comes to represent all of the evil nations around Israel who would attack God's people. And Obadiah is reminding God's people that someday there will be judgment against all of these evil nations. Now, let's jump forward more than 2,000 years beyond that into present day. Why should you care about reading the book of Obadiah? What value is there in the book of Obadiah? Here at the high, high level is what you should take away. And I encourage you this week to go watch the Bible Project video on Obadiah and then go read the book. You could watch the video and read the book in probably about half an hour at most. It won't take you very long at all. And that's doing a nice, comfortable, slow read. And hopefully what stands out to you is Obadiah, the book of Obadiah serves as a reminder to us that there are times in life when we face persecution, times when life is unfair, time when people are cruel to us and they don't act justly. And yet even in those circumstances, just as Obadiah reminds the nation of Israel, we can be reminded that God is still our righteous judge and that eventually he is going to bring judgment on these evil nations. Eventually, God will bring judgment against people who persecute you and who do not treat you fairly. Eventually, God will reign in justice and his rule will be supreme and his children, the children of God, the disciples of Christ, us included, we will be vindicated. And so if you ever have a time in your life where you're thinking, God, where are you? Why did you let this happen to me? What is going on here, God? Why, why are these wicked people all around me prospering? And yet I'm suffering harm. Not only that, I see these people, these neighbors or this coworker or someone I know or a distant, maybe it's even a relative 
in the case of Obadiah, they saw the Edomites as their relatives. And this relative who's done you harm and you say, God, where are you? Why did you let this happen? Obadiah reminds us that God does not always prevent these atrocities from taking place, but there will be a reckoning. There will be a judgment. And someday, everyone, every single person, even those who do wicked things and get away with it temporarily, they will face God's judgment. And so when I look at the book of Obadiah, I see it as a, where are you, God? And a reminder that he's still there and he sees and that he will bring judgment eventually. It won't be on our timetable. We may not necessarily understand what God is doing, but he will bring about his justice. And so that, in a nutshell, is the key point, the highlight that I'd, take, I'd like you to take away from the book of Obadiah as you read it later this week. Okay, you get a two-for-one deal tonight. So now we're going to switch gears, and we're going to go from Obadiah to the next book in the book of the Twelve, and that is the book of Jonah. Yay, Jonah. Now, Jonah is something that probably many of you are very, very familiar with. And if you spend any time in a Sunday school class at all as a child, somewhere in your Sunday school curriculum, you came across the story of Jonah. Because Jonah is probably one of the most fascinating, the craziest, most outrageous stories in all of the Old Testament. And when I say Jonah, probably all of you who are at least somewhat biblically literate, almost immediately think of what when I say Jonah? You think of a big fish, or maybe you said whale, and we've got this image in our head of this big fish swallowing up Jonah, and then we find Jonah changing his life, and we see him going and preaching, and yay, we read this story, but let's slow down and take a look at it again tonight. I have been familiar, familiar with the story of Jonah almost my entire life. But as an adult, going back and rereading this book, there's so, so much good stuff here that we miss if we reduce Jonah to this story about a prophet who gets swallowed by a big fish. So let's jump in. I would strongly encourage you again to go watch the Bible Project video on the book of Jonah. And then later you can go back and you can read the book of Jonah. It's only four chapters long, a little bit longer than Obadiah but it still won't take you that long to read. And here's what you'll see, and the Bible Project video will point this out. If you slow down and you think about the genre, the style of writing that the book of Jonah is written in, you're gonna see something. Jonah is full of paradoxes. Jonah is full of this oxymoronic characters who do the opposite of what you would expect a character to do. In modern terms today, we would describe the book of Jonah as satire. Jonah has these almost caricatures of people, these representations of how someone should be taken to its absolute extreme. And these characters behave very, very differently than what you would expect them to behave. And in behaving in these ridiculous, extreme ways, they demonstrate something to us. Jonah teaches us something. So let's see if we can figure out what we are supposed to take away from Jonah. The other thing that stands out about Jonah compared to all the other books of the prophets is that Jonah is not a prophecy. Jonah is a book about a prophet. Small difference, but very important. Obadiah contains his prophecies. If you listened to my wife's message last night on Amos, you heard her talk about 
the prophecies from Amos. If you listen to Leela, you heard her talk about the prophecies from Joel. If you listen to Arash back on Saturday, you heard him talk about the prophecies that were in Hosea. Now, Hosea does contain some information about Hosea's life, but it's a blend of the life of Hosea and his, marry to his, un, his marriage to his unfaithful wife, Gomer, and also his prophecies and what they represent. But now we get to the book of Jonah, and it's not about Jonah's prophecy. I'm going to get to that in chapter three. But what we really have is a story about a prophet. And if we take the polish off, because I think often rather as a result of our Sunday school training or just our desire to redeem as much as we can out of the Bible and make it look as good as possible. If we just come up for air and slow down and take a deep breath and actually look at the book, Jonah's not a very good character. You're not supposed to like Jonah. And I'll explain that as we walk through this in the next 10 minutes or so. In fact, if you take a close look at the life of Jonah, Jonah is never redeemed. Jonah has got a bad attitude. Jonah is disobedient. Jonah is rebellious. Jonah is unforgiving. Jonah does not, I repeat, Jonah does not repent. You read the book of Jonah, and especially compared to all of the other men of God and the prophets in the Old Testament, you're confronted by this absolutely rotten attitude, and it should make you stop and go, whoa, what is going on here? And you should recognize, I don't want to be like Jonah. This dude had some serious issues. So why? What's going on here? And why was this rotten, bad attitude preacher, this prophet, preserved in the Old Testament for us to read about? Well, let's jump in. In Jonah chapter 1. The story opens with God giving Jonah a message to go and preach to the nation of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And at the time of Jonah, Nineveh was the most powerful military nation on the planet alive at that time. It's not going to be too much longer after Jonah that the Assyrians and the capital city of Nineveh are going to march into the northern tribe of Israel, and they're going to utterly destroy Samaria and take the 10 northern tribes from the nation of Israel off into captivity, and they never recover from that. The Ninevites, the Assyrian military at this time in the ancient Near East, was known not only for its strong power, but for its wicked cruelty. Not only were they a strong military, they were feared by all their neighbors because they were some of the most vicious, brutal, violent, unforgiving people on the planet. They were the no holds barred, no quarters, take no prisoners, kill everybody army of that day. You do not want to be on the opposing side, side of a fight with the Assyrian army. And so God speaks to the prophet Jonah. And he says, I want you to go to Nineveh, their capital city, and I want you to preach to them. And immediately, Jonah gets up and he runs away. Now, why does Jonah run away? Here's the weird part about the story. It doesn't tell us at first. In fact, you have to get all the way to the end of the book before you find out why Jonah runs away. But here we are in chapter one. Jonah runs away. And he gets on board a ship at a seaport, and it's headed for Tarshish. Where is Tarshish? We're not entirely sure. Most likely, it was somewhere today, what we would probably call on the tip of Spain, 
or at least it was as far west as we could possibly imagine. Maybe it wasn't a specific place. It's just a general heading. It was this region that was far away. Jonah is instructed to head east to Nineveh. He immediately goes down to a seaport. He jumps on board a ship and he is sailing as far west as he possibly can. He is sailing to the edge of the known world in the ancient Near East. He is trying to get as far away from Nineveh as he can. Then as he gets on the boat, a big storm occurs. You all are probably very familiar with this part. And he's asleep down in the bottom of the boat. And the sailors who are pagans, and here's our first, here's, well, the first indication is why is the prophet of God running away from what God has told him to do? Now we get introduced to our second set of characters. And it makes it very clear that these are pagan sailors. These are not people who fear and honor the God of Israel. And they are using lots. In other words, they're casting die or something like that to try and figure out what's going on. And they realize that something's going on and they talk to Jonah and Jonah says, yes, it's me. It's my God who's angry. My God controls the land and the sea, which is a joke because he's trying to run away from his God on the sea. But he says, yeah, it's my God who's mad. Throw me overboard. Now, at first, this might sound like I'm taking responsibility for my actions, but read it a little slower. What you'll see is Jonah saying, kill me. He wants to be done. If he can't run away from his God, he may as well die. So the sailors are the ones who show repentance. They don't want to kill Jonah. They don't want to throw him into the sea. And then when they finally do, they beg God for forgiveness. And the scriptures say that they have an act of humility and God forgives them. And they begin to worship the God of Israel. The prophet from the land of Israel has a rotten attitude and he'd rather run away and die than be obedient to God. The pagan sailors who do not know the God of Israel are the ones who are begging God for forgiveness, repenting over the act of throwing Jonah overboard and are instead worshiping God. What's going on here? It's the pagans who are worshiping God, not the prophet. We get to Jonah chapter two. In chapter two, he's swallowed by a great fish. And this is God saying, ha. Not so fast, Jonah. You're not going to get away from this. You don't get the easy road out. And so God puts him into the belly of this large fish that he had prepared. And so for three days, Jonah sits in the digestive juices of some giant fish's stomach. And it was probably stinky and slimy and nasty and hot and totally pitch black dark. And you can see Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter two. But what's interesting, if you slow down and you just read through it, and I challenge all of you to go do it this week, go reread Jonah chapter two and his prayer. Jonah does not, I repeat, Jonah does not repent. He takes responsibility. He acknowledges who God is, but he doesn't actually say, I'm sorry, I was wrong please forgive me. I'll change my ways. Jonah does not repent. But at the end of chapter two and going into chapter three, God causes this fish to come up to the surface of the water and it vomits Jonah back out onto the land. And God, for the second time, repeats his instructions to Jonah. And he says, go to Nineveh and preach to them. And so you go read it. Jonah's throwing a hissy fit. and it's, Fine, I'll go do it. And so Jonah marches off to Nineveh. Now, at this point, the story tells us that Nineveh is massive. This city is so big 
that it would take a good three days to walk around the city and all of its outlying regions around it. So Jonah shows up in the capital city of Nineveh. Jonah, who's got a bad attitude. Jonah, who's unrepentant. Jonah, who does not want to be doing this. Jonah, who tried to kill himself, but God wouldn't let him. This Jonah shows up in Nineveh. And what does he preach? And this is where we get even weirder and more bizarre. Remember, this is the prophet. This is the man of God. He shows up in the city and his message is, hey, everybody, you're going to die. That's it. That's the whole message. Go back and read it again. In Hebrew, it's five words long. He doesn't tell them to repent. He doesn't tell them what they did wrong. He doesn't even say who his God is. He just says, hey, everybody, guess what? You gonna die soon. That's the entire message. It is the lamest, most underwhelming, underperforming prophecy in all of the entire Bible. It's ridiculous. It doesn't call anybody to action. There's no baptism under repentance like John the baptism, John the Baptist. There's there's no call to change your way. There's no even acknowledgement of who his God is. Jonah just runs around screaming for one day. By the way, one day he gives it the minimal effort that he possibly could. And for one day, he tells everybody, you're going to die. Chapter three closes. Boom. We get to chapter four. He goes outside the city. He's sitting on a hilltop overlooking everything. He's got his bad attitude, and he's waiting for something bad to happen. He's waiting for God's destruction. I'm sorry, but I skipped something in chapter 3. And this is the irony of Jonah chapter 3. Unlike Jonah, and as pathetic, as absolutely ridiculously anemic as his prophecy was, it says that everybody in the land of Nineveh starts repenting. All the way up to the king, the most wicked king alive at that time. He repents. He begins to humble himself for his actions. It says the repentance in Nineveh is so big that even the animals, even their cattle, even their livestock do not eat. Nobody drinks anything. They all fast and they're all seeking God's repentance. And so here's this massive contrast between the preacher with a bad attitude, making the minimal effort he can, and the wicked, evil, nasty, bad empire, who with the simple messages of, Hey, everybody, you're going to die. They're the ones who are repenting. They're the ones who are seeking after God. So we get to Jonah chapter four, and now he's outside the city and he's up on a hilltop. And I'm coming up. I'm a little past 730. Give me two more minutes and we'll go to our questions. Get ready for your questions. Joyce, get ready to come on and join me. And he's waiting for God's destruction. And he's waiting for this to happen. And it doesn't. And so he's sitting out there in the hot sun and God causes a plant or Depending on the translation, it may say some vines to grow up over Jonah's head. And he's thankful for the shade. But then God causes a worm to come and eat at the root of this plant. And it withers up and dies. And Jonah, the wonderful example that he's been so far, throws a tantrum like a little kid. He throws a hissy fit and he complains to God. And he says, let me die. I just wish I could die. And now we finally get to why Jonah ran away. And it's all the way over in chapter four of Jonah. And Jonah quotes from Exodus 34. And Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, 
is a description of when God passes by Moses, when Moses hides his face in the cleft of the rock, and God describes himself to Moses. And Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, I'm going to read it to you out of the New Living Translation, says, The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation. But notice the beginning of how God describes himself, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations, and I forgive iniquity and rebellion and sin. And so Jonas, Jonah is throwing his hissy fit. And now at the end of the story, not the beginning, at the end of the story, we finally figure out why Jonah ran away. Not because he was scared. No, Jonah ran away. Watch this. Verse two of chapter four. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are full of mercy and compassion, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. So just, just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted is not going to happen. Is this not the craziest thing you've ever seen? He's upset that God is going to show compassion. Flash forward just a little bit more. This worm eats up this plant. And so he complains again, I'd rather just die out here in the heat. And God's response is, you, you, you had pity on this, this little plant. Don't you think that I should have pity on this massive city with over 120,000 people living in it who are repenting right now? Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Boom, end of story. That's it, it stops. We don't know how Jonah responded because it's not the point. You, the reader, are supposed to recognize that Jonah is this terrible, rotten character who does not repent, who's got a bad attitude, who does not want God to show mercy, and he cares more about the plant that he was sitting under in the hot sun than he does over the 120,000 people who are right in front of him having the greatest revival in the entire Old Testament, by the way, that he doesn't want to be a part of, that he put the minimal amount of effort in and gave the weakest, lamest prophecy in all of the Old Testament. And yet it's the greatest level of repentance recorded in the entire Old Testament. And the book ends on that cliffhanger and you should be reading it. And it should challenge you to look at yourself and ask yourself, am I like Jonah? What if God forgives my enemies? What if God shows compassion and mercy to other people? Can I be okay with that? And that, my friend, is what Jonah is really all about. All right, Joyce, if you could go ahead and come off. I'm about five minutes over, but if you could join me now. If you haven't been, please go ahead and submit your questions. Hopefully you have some by now. Good evening, Joyce. And let's get to our question time. So, Joyce, have we got any questions that have been submitted yet? We do have a couple. So the first okay. one, what do you believe happened to Jonah 
after he delivered his message. Ah, okay. So you're not going to like my answer, but here we go. What happened to Jonah after he delivered his message? The best answer, the most biblically sound, the safest answer is we don't know. Scripture doesn't record. It doesn't tell us and it doesn't matter because Jonah is supposed to be an example to us of how we should not be living. So what happens to Jonah later isn't even the point of the story. Notice it just ends on a cliffhanger. It just abruptly stops because that's not the point. Now, there are some oral traditions that say, we have no confirmed proof of this, that eventually Jonah did repent and he went back to the city of Nineveh and that he actually continued to hold a revival there. But again, we have no actual record of that as accountable and verifiable that we know. So if you want a warm, fuzzy ending, and it's important to you that we end on a high note, it's possible that Jonah repented and he went back into the city of Nineveh and he began to teach these people the ways of God. But what scripture records is a guy with a really seriously bad attitude who ends his story throwing a tantrum over a dead plant and God challenging him. Don't you think I should care more about these 120,000 people than I should care about this plant? End of story. Okay, so another one. How yes, would you explain the dynamic of us having free will, but at the same time, God can force Jonah to do what God intends? And you'll be surprised because this is from Antoine. So it's an actual serious question this week. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, Antoine, my friend, since you want to throw this big one at me, let's see if I can give you my opinion. Now, hear me. I, I am saying this is my opinion. I do believe wholeheartedly that God gives us a free will. I do believe wholeheartedly that God allows us to make our own choices. In the story of Jonah, I see God's long arm of redemption, not only for the city of Nineveh, but also God compassionately trying to reach out and deal with Jonah. Jonah's trying to take the easy road out by running away. And when that doesn't work, basically trying to kill himself by insisting that he be thrown overboard so he can drown in the sea. Go read the story again. We know what's going to happen. Jonah doesn't. Jonah is not expecting a large fish to come rescue him. Jonah's expecting to die. He wants out of this scenario. He'd rather die than go preach to these people and them possibly repent and yet god says no jonah i love you too much to let you get away with that and there are times in our lives where god intervenes on our behalf to save us but we still have free will and i do believe that we have a choice there are some of us myself included who never imagined that i'd end up as a minister i had many other plans for my life and I have said before, and I really believe this, and I'm certain I'm not the only one of us out there, that there are people out there today who are ministers of the gospel because it's the only way they could be saved, uh, myself included. If I had not become a minister, I doubt I could have lived for God because it was an all-in, all-or-nothing kind of thing for me. I had plenty of selfish ambitions that I wanted to go pursue, and they would not have ended well for me. And God had enough compassion on me to keep poking and keep needling me, and keep prodding me, and 
tonight's not about me, but some other time you'll have to hear my own testimony about how my life fell apart at the end of high school and all my college plans didn't come to fruition. And God, I felt like was boxing me into a corner and I ended up in Bible college because it was literally the only door that was open to me. And yet looking back, I see God's hand of compassion and mercy on me as he saved me through that experience. But I also believe that I had the choice not to go. And I could have completely destroyed my life. And I believe that Jonah could have been vomited up onto the shore and still have made the choice not to go to Nineveh the second time. And God would have let him destroy himself. And if that had happened, God simply would have sent another prophet to the land of Nineveh. God would have, God's plans would not have been thwarted by Jonah trying to avoid what God was asking him to do. He would have sent somebody else. I love in this story, too, because we tend to put our focus on the minister. I'm, I'm kind of going off your question, but I want to throw this in. This is me cheating because I ran out of time. So in the q and I'm still bringing up more points about Jonah. I love how in the story of Jonah, he makes the lamest, most pathetic, pitiful attempt at being obedient to God. And he walks in and says, hey, everybody, you're going to die. That's it. And yet there's this massive revival. And 120,000 people start repenting and prostrating themselves before God and saying, please have mercy on us. And they begin to turn from their wicked ways. And it, it demonstrates how it's really not about the preacher. It's about a move of God and what he's deciding to do. Because this is the lamest, by far the lamest preacher in the entire Old Testament. And yet he has the biggest revival. And he's got a bad attitude about it the whole time. And he doesn't even want the revival to happen. And yet God is still moving. And he's still slow to get angry. And he's still compassionate upon these people. Because it wasn't really about Jonah. Jonah's story is in the scripture to help us hold a mirror up to ourselves. And look at ourselves. And, and be confronted with our own attitudes. But I do believe that Jonah still had a free will. Jonah had choices. He made some bad choices. And at the end of the story, he still got a rotten attitude. And in some ways, yes, being swallowed by a fish and being spit up on dry land, you could say that God forced his hand and made him go to Nineveh. I think what God did personally is that he rescued Jonah and gave him a second chance. I sincerely believe, and this is my opinion, that Jonah was spit up onto that shore and he could have walked away a second time and God would have let him destroy himself. But God was reaching not only for Nineveh, God was reaching for Jonah. So that's. That's my take on that. So God will really do whatever question. is necessary to save us. I believe that God has such a loving, long hand of mercy mm -hmm. and redemption. It's this passage that we read out of Exodus where notice it's not Moses. It's God describing himself to Moses. And he says, I am full of mercy and compassion. I am slow to get angry. That's how God describes himself. That's not how Moses describes God. That's how God describes himself to Moses. And I, I believe that God is reaching for Jonah and God reaches for us. But if you insist with reckless abandon, if you insist on being obstinate and rebellious and destroying yourself, God will eventually let you do it. He's not going to strong arm you into heaven. But he is going to try and get your attention. And sometimes God can be really, really loud in trying to get our attention. And Jonah is probably the most extreme example in all of scripture where the man insists on running away 
He can't escape. So he throws himself into the sea, which is in essence an act of suicide. And God sends a giant fish to swallow him and bring him back to the shore and spit him out and say, nope, not done with you. Try again. Okay, so another question. It seems that Jonah was embarrassed because his prophecy would not come true. Why do you think scripture is trying, what do you think scripture is trying to teach us? You know what's interesting, and this is a great lesson on prophecy in of itself, if I can take it up a level. Um, We tend to see prophecy as very, very linear and very, very flat, and it's a done deal. But if you go back and you just do a slow reading all throughout scriptures, the prophecies, many of them, not all of them, but many of them are contingent. You will see where God prophesies through a prophet in the Old Testament, and he prophesies blessing if they'll do a certain thing. He prophesies destruction if they behave a certain way. Sometimes he prophesies destruction, and then people repent. And God doesn't bring about the level of destruction that he said he was going to. We see God offering punishment even on the nation of Israel several times. Where all of a sudden they repent. And you can see it even in the Psalms where they make statements like, who knows? Maybe, maybe the Lord will relent. So the nation of Israel understood that there were times when prophecy would go out. And it was a stern warning and kind of unspoken but there was this contingency that said if i repent perhaps it won't be as bad as i thought a lot of prophecy especially prophecy about judgment has almost an if statement built into it but jonah doesn't even give them the if jonah doesn't even tell them to repent jonah doesn't say who sent him jonah doesn't say why they're being judged he just busts up into that city goes at it by the way for one day Again, minimal effort and just says, hey, everybody, you're going to die and turns around and walks back out. And yet they somewhere in that understood, maybe, maybe, maybe this God will show us mercy. And he did because he is full of compassion and love and mercy and slow to get angry. This image of God as Zeus or Thor up on his mountaintop with his lightning bolt waiting to zap people when they make mistake. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God that we see repeatedly in the Old Testament, where he's often portrayed as more harsh than in the New Testament or in the New Testament. That is not a biblical picture of God at all. Eventually, if you insist on rebelling, you will face divine wrath and punishment for your own stupid, bad, selfish choices. But most of the time, what we see is a God who is very, very slow to get angry and full of compassion. And this is why Jonah's angry. He fully expected God to extend mercy. That's why he ran away. He didn't want the Ninevites to repent. You see him storming out of the city, throwing his tantrum, his hissy fit at the beginning of chapter four. And he said, I I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to show mercy. That's why I didn't want to come. So while Jonah prophesied destruction, At the same time, he was already upset because he was pretty sure that God would forgive them if they just make an effort to repent. And then sure enough, they start to repent and he leaves throwing a fit because here you are doing exactly what I thought you'd do. Going to show him forgiveness. 
So I think you mentioned that Jonah didn't say who even sent him. So that leads to another question from Kendall, actually. So uh-huh. were the Ninevites repenting to Jonah's God? He says, how did they even know which God to repent to? Excellent question. Uh-huh. And again, here's a great answer that you're not going to like, but he's used to it because he's my son. We don't exactly know. Scripture doesn't give us all that detail. But what we do see, even if it was just a general repentance, because God works with people where they're at. Let's say it's a pagan nation. Likely they could, they knew he wasn't Ninevite. By default, being a Hebrew, and they could recognize by his attire, probably his speech, his accent, all of it. They could pick out what nation he was from. And so if he walks in and he's saying, I'm coming with a message and you're going to die, they could put two and two together. I'm pretty sure they could figure out that it was the Hebrew God that was warning them. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say, let's say they were not even that aware. The Ninevites were willing to repent for their wickedness. They, they knew that they were a wicked, evil, violent nation. And just a general repentance. Remember, repentance is not just words, but it's a change in action. It's a turning of your ways. Even at that level, just a general level of repentance, God looks at them and says, I can work with that. That's a good start. For Anything now, else, Joyce? I think that's all of our questions. All right. Yeah, I think well, we hit them all. That's okay. It's a pretty straightforward story. In some ways, we're very, very familiar with the book of Jonah, and we're very familiar with it. And I challenge all of you to go back and do a slow read of it, because it's easy to look at the book of Jonah and go, right, prophet, big fish, I know this one. But go back and do a slow read. And what you'll really begin to see is, whoa, this dude's got some issues. Like, this is not a good guy. And Jonah hopefully helps us to reflect on our own life. And are are we willing to be okay with God forgiving people who hurt us? Are we willing to be okay with a God who's slow to get angry? We love the idea of mercy extended towards us, but what about mercy extended towards people who hurt us? What about mercy towards the abuser? What about mercy towards the enemy? What about mercy towards that jerk of a neighbor? Or that rotten coworker who makes your life difficult. Jonah challenges us to rethink these things. And so I encourage all of you to go back. And not just with Jonah. We started with Obadiah. Go read Obadiah. It will literally take you just a few minutes. But as you read it, recognize, yes, this was specific to a particular nation. But it serves at a high level as a reminder to all of us that there will be justice eventually. Even when unjust things happen right now and we don't see a resolution to them, God sees and he doesn't forget. And you can see it's, it's kind of cool. You see the two sides of it because with Obadiah, we see God telling those people, you think you're safe high up in your mountain fortresses and that nobody can get to you? Judgment is coming. And so on one hand, we see justice that's coming. And then in the very, very next book, and I believe they're put next to each other on purpose. It creates this beautiful juxtaposition because God is complicated. We're complicated. We're made in his image. and God's infinitely more complex than us. He's not just a man with lightning bolts and a divine hammer waiting to smash things. He's also a God that's slow to get angry and full of compassion. And so with Obadiah, we see future judgment that's going to come on wicked people because they won't repent. 
And in Nineveh, we see wicked, wicked, nasty, evil, violent people who are willing to repent. And God says, I can work with that. I'll forgive you. So he is both the God of justice and also the God of mercy. And he holds both in his hand. Do you have any tips that you can give so we can better align ourselves with God's will? <laughs> uh, this one's a bit difficult because I struggle with this. I think we all struggle with this. This is another, this would be a great Bible study for another time, this idea of how do I know what God's will is? The first, first thing I would tell anyone is to read the scriptures and study them because if what you think is God's will or what you want to ask God permission for, if it violates something in scripture, don't bother. If scripture is already telling you to do something, you don't need to pray and fast and seek after God's will to be obedient to what scripture already tells you to do. But as we pursue a life of holiness, as we pursue, we're wrapping up our fruit of the spirit this week. If you did not have small group on Tuesday, I encourage you to join tomorrow night. We're doing our last lesson on the fruit of the spirit as we talk about gentleness and self-control. And that kind of rounds out our discussion this trimester on the fruit of the spirit. As disciples of Christ, as we pursue holiness, as we work to have the fruit of the spirit active in our life, what you'll find as you continue to mature in your walk with God is that it's less and less about your actions and more and more about your heart and your mind. I don't spend every day repenting and asking God to help me not drink and not sleep around. And not go rob a bank and, you know, all these big sins that we tend to associate, right? These evil, violent, egregious outward actions. But instead, many of us probably need to spend time every day saying, oh, God, please forgive my attitude. Help change the way I think. Help me to be more patient and kind with people. Help me to show more love and mercy and compassion. Jesus, help me to be more like you. Help me to be full of love and mercy and grace. And help me to be slow to get angry. These are the kind of things that I think we need to pursue that will help us be in tune with what's God, what is God's will for our life. So if that's it, Joyce, and it's okay if it is, just wanted to double check. Do we have any other questions or comments? Or We actually received two more questions. So, all right. Okay, we're not when, quite done yet. Go ahead. <laughs> not quite. So, did good happening? Did good happen historically because of this time of repentance by the Ninevites? So, what was the well? Outcome? You just read the biblical narrative, and we find that God did not destroy them, and later God uses them as His tool to to judge Israel. So, the nation of Nineveh is extended for some time. Pinning down the exact historical date of Jonah is a little bit difficult. It's not too bad, actually. I, I, let me correct that, because we know that he was alive during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And I didn't do it before this Bible study, but you could go to, say, the New English translation of the Bible, and it wouldn't take much effort to figure out when Jeroboam II was king. So we know the story of Jonah takes place somewhere during his lifetime, because he also shows up in 2 Kings, and he's prophesying to Jeroboam II. So... You can place this turn in Nineveh's history to somewhere there. And then we know later on that the nation of Babylon destroys Nineveh as a nation. And so 
you can see at a high level kind of a ballpark time period of how long between the revival and repentance that happens with Jonah and the total destruction of their nation. They were a wicked pagan nation and God eventually destroyed them. But it was pushed out. It did not happen in Jonah's lifetime because they turned and they began to change their ways and repent. So hopefully that answers that question. And then did you say you had one more? Yes. What do you do mm -hmm. if you come across someone like Jonah, stubborn? How do you act around them? Reckless, foolhardy, stubborn, rebellious people will often set themselves on a path of destruction. And unfortunately, many times there's not a whole lot you can do. Uh, you're not going to save them. So be kind to them. To the best of your ability, be patient with them. If in your interactions with them, they put you in harm's way or they're aggressive towards you, if you can, avoid them or minimize your interaction with them and then certainly pray for them. But at the end of the day, that stubborn, rebellious, hard-hearted person, they've got a lot to learn and probably a long, hard road ahead of them. And the reason they have a long, hard road ahead of them is because our God is full of love and mercy and compassion and he's slow to get angry. And that hard road is to try and get them to get their act together and to change their ways. And so pray that God would speak to them and that he would touch their heart. But you may just have to watch from the sidelines and continue to pray for a change in them because you're not going to elicit that change in and of yourself. All right. Uh, does that catch us up, Joyce? Yes, we're all caught up. All right. Thank you all for joining our Wednesday live Bible study here on July 22nd. Tonight we talked about Obadiah and Jonah. I encourage you to continue to visit your small groups and tune into our evening broadcast at 7 p.m. If you're watching with us for the first time or perhaps you're an occasional watcher, you can come get more information about our church and what we're doing during this COVID-19 crisis. We're live Tuesday through Sunday at 7 p.m. Excuse me, we broadcast Tuesday through Sunday at 7 p.m. We're live on Wednesdays and Fridays, and you can get more information at our church website at newarkupc.info. Thank you all for joining us tonight. I appreciate the engagement and the questions. We're so glad you're here. God bless you all, and have a good evening. Thanks once again, and good night.